Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. If you're a real estate professional delivering value to your clients, an investor creating value not seen by others, or a busy professional who passively invests in real estate to grow the value of their hard-earned dollar, then you're in the right place. And now your host, Nick Walters. Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added the real estate podcast. On this week's episode, we're chatting with Chris Nebenzal. Chris is a director with Yardi Matrix. Yardi Matrix is a commercial real estate data analytics platform. They offer the industry's most comprehensive market intelligence tool for investment professionals, equity investors, lenders, and property managers who underwrite and manage investments in multifamily, student housing, industrial, office, and self-storage assets. So without further ado, Let's get on with the show. Chris Nebenzal, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thanks, Nick. Good to be here. Tell the listeners a little bit about uh, your background and how you got to where you are today. Certainly. Yeah. Um, so I originally worked uh, in the financial services sector. Uh, I was a portfolio manager uh, of fixed income securities for a while, really cutting my teeth uh, in financial markets and trading and, and managing a real estate portfolio on the side. So I know a lot of you are real estate folks. And um, I started out like many of you did, you know, buying a single family home, buying a condo, buying another single family home, and just slowly adding to the portfolio. Um, managed them myself and, and really had real estate as a, as a side project. Uh, as I said, I was working for Bank of New York in their fixed income department uh, for about five years. And getting a good understanding of the interest rate market, what was going on economically. Uh, and then I decided, look, I've got this portfolio on my own. Is it worth trying to pursue a nine to five, a real time job in the real estate industry? So I started looking around. I was uh, um, kind of kicking the tires at a number of different places and, and found Yardy Matrix, uh, really connected with their uh, investment strategy theses and the data that they use. Uh, I'm a kind of a data nerd. I love digging into the data, whether it's real estate data or demographic data, economic data. Um, and so found, found Matrix, found Yardy Matrix, and um, really connected with what they were doing. The way they're collecting data, the way they're aggregating their data and using their data as, part, as a, a key part of the uh, real estate investment process. Now, Yardy doesn't buy um, or sell real estate on its own. They're a service provider for uh, the real estate industry and for brokers, for owners and operators. Um, but I love the connection between having my own portfolio um, and continuing to grow that portfolio and also being able to see uh, and work with data, work with our clients um, on, a, on a regular basis to continue to kind of drive these investment theses forward. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts and get into the, the weeds with Yardy Matrix, but I want to back up and talk about your uh, investment experience. Uh, we all know, especially in the information age, age uh, data analytics is everything. Um, so, you know firsthand as you've analyzed properties, markets, uh, you know, pro formas, you know, the, the you know, Microsoft Excel sheets, uh, you know how important 
analyzing numbers are. How um, how did you um, you know analyze the deals that you ended up buying? And uh, you know, before you were introduced to Yardi Matrix, um, what was the um, you know what what was kind of your underwriting process for your personal p- portfolio? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Nick. And um, I would say, like many uh, beginner investors or amateur investors, uh, the first house I bought, I guess we could call it a deal, but the first house I bought um, was very much a smell test. Um, and I looked at it and said, do I want to live there? Uh, I was 22 at the time. I said, you know, this could be something that A, would fit a need that I have. Where am I going to live? And B, could I eventually turn it over into a rental? Um, so I knew the neighborhood quite well. Um, I had some people that I was going to live with, was able to get the financing and, and purchase the house. Um, I did that for f- probably the first two or three um, properties that I, I invested in. Again, very much on a um, kind of back of the envelope, um, non-sophisticated, non-data heavy way. Um, what I've been able to do recently since joining Yardi about four, four or so years ago, um, was then use data for additional investments and then also use data to drive the management of those rentals. So I've kept the, the rentals in my portfolio. Um, but the, the first couple of deals were very much, you know, how does the block look? Where's the closest Starbucks? What is the school system like? Um, pulling information from a number of diff- disparate sources and kind of doing this a little bit, you know, and, and getting a feel for, for what the area was. Um, so I would say they were, it was data limited, um, and more feel forward. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, I, I, I'm a golfer and, uh, you know, there are a lot of golfers that play by feel rather than knowing the exact yardage of a, you know, of a shot. Um, so you were, you know, in your earlier career, when you were buying smaller deals, you were more of a feel player, so to speak. Um, and you see that a lot with hyper-local investors who know a, a market very, very intimately. And they can, you know, do nap, napkin, you know, back of, the, back of the napkin math and know if this is a good deal or not. But there comes to a point where you're maybe investing out of state uh, you're investing in larger deals. And that's when information and data are very, very important. So let's transition into how did you hook up with Yardi Matrix? And I also want to spend a little bit of time to talk about the, the breadth of, of services that Yardi Matrix provides. Yeah, certainly. Um, so like I said, when I was kind of looking around for new jobs, I had you know a couple feelers out in different directions in different industries, uh, when, and when I began talking with Yardi Matrix, I could I could feel something really clicking. Um, the combination of data and then use of data in the real estate industry, um, which at that point was still somewhat new. Um, certainly, CoStar has been around a while. Axiometrics has been around a while. Yardi Matrix um, and the predecessor company Pierce Island is a little bit newer, um, but in the real estate industry in general data I think is still kind of on the cutting edge. Um, A lot of people are now using data. Certainly the big institutional players are. Um, But compared to other industries, say the medical field or the tech field, we're still kind of in in the infancy, we being the real estate industry in terms of how we're using data. 
So I saw saw it as a real opportunity to start, you know, driving um, the industry forward and helping drive the industry forward. When I started at Yardy, we were just in multifamily. Uh, I think we we're in about sixty-five or seventy markets, uh, and I've I, I've had the opportunity to help grow that. So we're now in one hundred and thirty markets in multifamily. Uh, we cover student housing, self-storage, office, industrial, uh, and again, it's been quite interesting and, and a huge opportunity to watch that kind of grow across asset classes, um, helping clients and and kind of looking at deals myself. Uh, using the data that we've been able to collect, aggregate, um, and then distribute back to the industry. So how important is the exchange of data in, in today's landscape? And, and not just data, but accurate data. Yeah, it's really crucial. Uh, and you made a good point about looking outside your market. Um, I would never argue with a broker who's been in a market for 40 years and knows every square inch of a certain submarket. But when you're looking at bigger deals and when you're looking at a bigger breadth of deals, perhaps it's a portfolio deal across markets, uh, perhaps you're just looking to expand in other places, you really need the data to understand how that market is functioning and how it relates back to your market. I I love looking at data. I'm out here in Denver. um, And so I would tell you that I know the Denver market pretty well. But Denver's not the only market and Denver's not the best market to invest in. So what I love doing looking at data is to say, okay, what submarkets in Denver might be similar to a submarket in Austin, might be similar to a submarket in New York, might be similar to a submarket in San Francisco. And and why is that? Not just because the rents are the same or there's the same amount of development, but what jobs are going in there? Um Certainly, you, you've seen the, the big tech companies that for a while were in Boston, New York, San Francisco. They're opening up office in, offices in North Carolina, in Austin, in Pittsburgh, in Denver. Um, and, and they're not just doing that because they like the, the climate or anything. They've done their research too. So what, is the, what are the demographic factors, age and income? Uh, what are the employment factors, job growth um, and, and job industry? That are that are driving different cities and different submarkets, and then how can I relate that back to what I know? I always love to relate things back to what I know or contrast things to what I know. With San Francisco, San Francisco is a good example. Um, there's so much going on in the tech world, certainly in San Francisco, in New York, in Boston, but there's a lot also going on in places like Raleigh, North Carolina, or Austin, Denver, Pittsburgh. Um, so when I'm using data, when I want to look at comparable markets or even contrasting markets. We know that San Francisco is a cut above in terms of the the median income, the rent, cost of properties, et cetera. But a lot of the similar kind of underpinnings of those markets, highly educated workforce, um, tech infrastructure, tech jobs, you want to look for those comparative purpose, comparative um, fundamentals or factors. And then you can start using the data to say, okay, what do I need to know about San Francisco that's also applicable to a Denver? Or if you want to go for a tertiary market strategy, how can I look at a market perhaps like Boise? Boise, a lot of people are talking about as the next Salt Lake, the next Denver, the next Austin, pulling tech talent out of San Francisco. So how do I use real estate data, economic data, demographic data to say, okay, this is where I want to position myself given my strategy 
If it's a core strategy, you go into certain markets. If it's a secondary market strategy with core submarkets, well, then you can look at, at similar data to that as well. Look at comparable cities, comparable submarkets. Uh, and finally, that tertiary market example, um, if you're executing a tertiary strategy, well, then how do I get in front of the curve? How do I find a market that hasn't yet popped, but is likely to pop based on a lot of these real estate, economic, demographic, social factors as well? How does a market pop like that? How does a corporation, how does, uh, how does a, a coffee chain or even a local coffee chain, how does a yoga studio, how, how does a market pop like that? Like take a, a tertiary market like Boise, Idaho. Yeah, I think uh, you've got to really find the, the correct balance from a social and political standpoint. Um, you want to attract people into your city. You want to attract jobs into your city, right? That's that's pretty much the goal of any city council, any mayor, um, certainly of a city that, that wants to grow. Um, so I often look at a number of cities and a number of markets where they might have a more liberal or progressive lean at the local level, in the city level, but perhaps a more business-friendly, uh, more um, laissez-faire or conservative um, economic policy at the state level. And again, not to harp on these markets too much, but if you look at a Pittsburgh, a Raleigh, North Carolina, Austin, Denver, um, these seem to be more moderate or right-leaning states, but perhaps the more liberal or progressive localities within those states. Um, and you get a lot of the, you get a lot of that around university towns as well. Um, think in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and you're seeing kind of the, the natural growth. So you want that top tier talent, you want highly educated um, talent, right? To, to fill your tech jobs, your finance jobs. And so if you build that environment around um, intellectual capital and around locations um, where there is perhaps a university, perhaps a medical center, uh, perhaps a, a kind of a, a technological center, um, oftentimes you can get a concentration of that talent, a concentration of that um, creative talent. And if you can do that within a business-friendly state or business-friendly environment, you'll see the fastest growth. So again, with a place like Boise, you got a large university, you've got a little bit more of a left-leaning bent, but in a um, more conservative state. Uh, and, and you can see kind of the underpinnings of that growth. Same with Salt Lake, same with um, Phoenix, uh, same thing happening here in Colorado and Denver. Um, Colorado Springs is a little bit more uh, right-leaning, but it's starting to move to the left at the local level with a more business-friendly uh, state environment. Austin, Texas, one of those towns, now a city, that I believe they capitalized on a, a couple things. The University of Texas, uh, one of the you know, you know one of the best institution, best public institutions in the country. Uh, University of Texas has an amazing business school, uh, and then you have a gentleman by the name of Michael Dell, who started Dell Computers, you know, years ago. Uh, but I feel that he and other uh, Austin-based tech companies from you know the the '90s and early 2000s were those kind of pioneers that started this growth in Austin, Texas, 
now that's a very uh, a very big, in my opinion, a very uh, you know, deflated um, market. It's very tough to find find value there. Uh, let's talk about a, a city like Austin and how uh, a, a, a a college town, for all intents and purposes, grows into a a tech hub. Yeah, and and Michael Dell is a great example. You can't just have the university. You need to have one or a few entrepreneurs that say, look, I want to plant my flag in, in this area or I want to expand in this area. Look at what Apple's doing in, in Austin as well, a billion dollar campus. Um, but w- what's, that, what's that spark? What's that, that fuse that builds? I, I think a lot of it is um, you've got the university, you've got the talent, and then you also have some sort of amenity, some sort of lifestyle um, attraction. That, that wants to bring people there and keep people there. In Austin, it's the hill country, the lakes and, and kind of the, the uh, cool weather and cool vibe um, for, for other Texans, right? You've got the hot and humid Houston, you've got kind of the dry Western part of Texas and, and the big Metroplex and DFW, but Austin's kind of the, the cool little part that, that people wanna, wanna go to. Um, the mountains in Colorado, the beaches in certain areas, um, even the, the warm weather in a place like Phoenix, you've got to have something else that's, that's drawing people in. Um, so not only do you have to have that entrepreneurial spark, the business spark, the, the talent or the, the educated workforce, but then there's some sort of community draw. Um, and it doesn't have to just be climate either. You know, you could look at, New York, the arts and the culture scene that draws people to New York, right? Best restaurants, best theater, um, best everything in, in New York. What is it that makes your city, makes a city unique to draw people in there? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, when we are analyzing, let's just talk multifamily. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, main, the main fundamentals are job growth, population growth, weather is playing even more of a factor now with the, the migration of the, uh, the baby boomers to the Southeast and the Southwest to warmer climates. Let's talk about some other metrics that you're seeing that are, are being used more by uh, investors as they decide what markets to penetrate. Yeah. And another one that a lot of the multifamily industry uses and has been using is rent to income ratios. Um, But that started to pop up even more as some of these secondary markets have gained steam. So again, looking at an Austin, looking at a Raleigh, looking at a Denver, the housing markets and the cost of living in those markets has just skyrocketed in the past 10 years. Now, the the relative attractiveness from a cost of living has always been there compared to New York, compared to San Francisco, compared to Boston, but that gap is narrowing. And while it's still present, the narrowing of the gap and the increased cost of living, perhaps the incomes haven't risen quite as quickly. So then you're starting to see this kind of tertiary look. Okay. If Austin is getting too expensive, it's, if it's getting too hard to find a deal, if Denver is getting too expensive, if it's getting too hard to find a deal, where can I go outside those markets? And so San Marcos in, in 
uh, in between San Antonio and Austin has been growing quite quickly. Colorado Springs and Castle Rock has been growing quite quickly. So it's kind of the the continuous trickle down effect, right? San Francisco, and New York, we've we've heard that story for a while. Secondary markets. Now the secondary markets are getting expensive. Perhaps I go to another secondary market using Denver. Maybe I'll go over the mountains to Salt Lake. Maybe I'll go up to Boise. Maybe I'll go down to Colorado Springs. Where can I open, if I'm a company, where can I open up satellite offices that might be a little bit more affordable, still get pretty good talent? Same thing with multifamily. Where can I follow this this trend, this flow of, of people saying, you know what? The rent is too high in New York. I'm getting out. I'm going to Raleigh. I'm going to Austin. I'm going to Denver. Okay. Whether it's that same person or a similar uh, tier of people in those new markets, where are they going? And how do you follow the trends of where that rent to income ratio stays, stays pretty well balanced? Let's talk specifically about Yardi Matrix and how Yardi Matrix specifically separates itself from the other, uh, the other data providers out there for commercial real estate operators and investors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are a number of, of great firms in the industry providing data. Um, what Yardi does and what Yardi's always prided itself on um, is the, the, meticulous nature in which it collects data. Um, it's not pulling, you know, from, from our websites. It's certainly not pulling from our, um, our clients and their property management software, but we're calling all of our properties to find out what their rent is, find out what their occupancy is. Uh, we're checking with a number of sources to verify loan information, to verify our sale information. Um, and it's all uh, very much manual. We've got a team of people around the world that are making these calls, that are doing the research, and, and we feel while it might be a little bit more time intensive, a little bit more labor intensive, and perhaps even cost intensive, being able to verify each of the data points that we're putting forth uh, is, is certainly um, one of the things that, that we pride ourselves on. And you specifically, are your, your role on a daily basis, are you managing, are you managing specific counts? Uh, are you, uh, do you cover uh, specific regions in the United States? Tell us a little bit about your specific role and how you've been able to grow the, uh, the Yardi Matrix reach uh, over the last few years since you've been with the company. Yeah, absolutely. My role is not as much in, in the research operations, in, in collecting each individual data point, as it is in kind of the overall um, messaging and the, the investment theses and the data aggregation. So what we do is we pull a lot of the data that we're getting internally, our real estate data, sales, occupancy, rents, trends, and, and everything uh, across the country. And, and we're coupling that with economic data. Uh, and demographic data to tell a story. Um, why New York? Why Greenwich, Connecticut? Why Denver? Why Miami? Um, and, and we're pulling not only our data, but data from outside sources to say, okay, New York was one of the hardest hit markets from COVID right off the bat. It seems to be doing a little bit better, but perhaps the rents are starting to decline. Well, where are they, go where are they growing? They're growing in more suburban areas. They're growing in smaller markets. Uh, Texas and Florida seem to be the hotbeds right now. What do we know about unemployment claims in Texas and Florida as COVID cases spike? What do we know about the long-term trend of unemployment in certain areas 
um, or the long-term trend in domestic migration. As you referenced earlier, people are leaving the bigger cities and moving to secondary markets. This isn't brand new, and this probably won't reverse course immediately or, or anytime. Um, but what can we realize, what can we gain from looking at census data or Bureau of Labor St Statistics data coupled with our real estate data to say, this is the picture of the market you might be investing in? Let's go back and talk about Yardi Matrix and the, the team's collection of data and that, you know, how it's analyzed and then dispersed out to the, the users of, of your platform. What are you guys doing to ensure that the, the most accurate, time-sensitive data is collected, uh, organized, and then distributed out to the, the various users on your platform? Uh, you mentioned, I'm sure that you have a large team that, um, you know, they are on the phone with, with operators uh, every day or email. Um, but I also want to ask you, are owner operators or property managers uh, are they are, are they open to divulge that information? Yeah, I would say that for the most part they are, and that gets back to your question about the importance of data and data transparency um, and accurate data in the industry. When when we're calling, we're um, often calling as prospective renters, um, so finding out what uh, an apartment is renting for. Uh, oftentimes, their leasing agents are, are very much willing to share that. Um, other times when we're calling, we're calling um, as researchers. I'm looking for um, any developments. I know you've got a building under construction. Um, looking you know, for any developments in the construction process, certificate of occupancy, checking with different sources, the developer may be one, but also the municipality, the planning board, the zoning board, um, the inspector. So we're really trying to refine that accuracy and, and priding ourselves on our accuracy through the number of sources that we're able to get and, and the way in which we're, we're collecting that data. You guys have probably been working over time with how the market has turned a 180 in the last few months uh, versus where the market was for you know, the better part of the last decade with regards to the multifamily market. Give me a little snapshot and maybe even reference uh, a few uh, lagging markets or mar markets that have, have, uh, have done well through the, this, this, uh, this downturn. Uh, give me a little snapshot of what Yardi Matrix's overall outlook is on the market in the next you know, six months uh, to 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Um, since we're really only four months into this, it, the, the data is relatively lacking. But what we've seen just in the, initial, um, in the initial outcomes is that a lot of the bigger markets, the LAs, the San Francisco's, New York's of the world, um, seem to be experiencing the quickest pullback in terms of rents, in terms of occupancy. Um, and I think a lot of that is due to just how expensive those markets were to begin with, but also how densely populated those markets are. Um, people saying, you know what, if, if the restaurants are closed, if the theaters are closed, if the bars are closed, if the sporting events are closed, all of those additional benefits um, of living in New York are not there to me anymore. So perhaps I'm now in a 600 square foot studio and I'm paying a pretty penny for it. Maybe it's time for me to look elsewhere, or maybe it's time to at least try to renegotiate part of my rent. Um, so we're seeing the, the most movement, I'd say, 
um, and the and the quickest movement, the fastest movement in some of those big coastal markets. The Midwest thus far seems to be doing okay. Um, again, they haven't really been hit too hard from a COVID perspective. Um, they're generally more affordable markets uh, and generally more stable markets, meaning the growth is a little bit slower, but the declines are also a little bit um, less or a little bit slower. So the Midwest seems to have been doing okay. Uh, in terms of where do I see this going forward? Well, certainly a lot of it depends on how the economy is doing. And a lot of that depends on, can we get this virus under control? You know, are people wearing masks? Will we get a vaccine? Will we be able to return to some semblance of normalcy? And I think there are steps that we can take as a society, as witnessed in Europe and in other parts of the world, that can return us back to normalcy a little bit sooner. But that's going to be the big question in terms of how can we get society back to normal, how quickly we can do that, and how quickly the economy comes back. Um, but in terms of market to market, I think the secondary markets that we've been talking about um, and some of the, the tech-heavy or the intellectual capital-heavy tertiary markets are likely to, to kind of win the day coming out of this. Again, in a de-densification, a de-urbanization play, um, I don't think New York is dead. I don't think Boston is dead. I don't think San Francisco is dead. Um, but I do think those markets will take a beating perhaps a little bit harder than some of the secondary markets will over the next 12 to 18 months. Have you seen any indication of any uh, specific classes of multifamily, A, B, or C class uh, that have uh, are showing uh, more signs of, of, a, of a depressed market versus other classes? Yeah, and, and I think what would have what we would have expected to see um, is the Class C market really take a hit, right? Um, a lot of the service jobs were the jobs that had been lost, and in a normal environment, without the additional stimulus and the additional unemployment benefits, I think a lot of those um, people who were living in Class C apartments perhaps would have been displaced, would have been forced to move in with family members or friends or or double up. Um, Given the unprecedented stimulus, we haven't really seen that. In, in fact, Class C apartments are doing fairly well from a collection standpoint. No one's really seeing rent growth, but um, looking at collections, things seem to be pretty good. Now, if that expires, it's set to expire at the end of the month. I know right now the House and the Senate are talking about additional bills. Um, if that continues, then that'll continue to bolster all apartments, but again, mostly the, the C and B class. Um, if that expires, I would expect to see a little bit more pain in the B and C class from a performance standpoint. Um, interestingly enough, on the A side, a lot of people who are renting A class apartments are typically in jobs that might be able to work from home, might be able to have been have sustained their income through this. Um, what we've seen just a little bit in talking to some of the operators is that class A in the most expensive markets, um, especially where some of the leases might've been corporate leases, um, those have taken a, a quick hit because corporate leases, people have kind of walked away from corporate leases very quickly. Um, but overall, I think the market is just kind of steady, the apartment market. It's being buffered um, at the high end by those who are able to work and able to continue to earn income at the lower end by additional unemployment benefits. Um, but again, if, if that dynamic changes at all, either we see more um, 
job losses in more intellectual and idea-based jobs, or we don't see the additional unemployment for the service workers who might have lost their jobs, then we're probably going to see a little bit more pain across the industry. Yeah, I think uh, as long as this stimulus uh, is propping up rent collections, which especially in the you know the the, the workforce housing uh, asset class, uh, I think there's I think there's going to be a lot of pain once that expires. Um, I, I do feel that the the additional stimulus is propping up rent collections uh, for now, which is has been great. I mean, uh, you know, most most operators that I'm speaking to the rent uh, rent collections have been, uh, as good, if not better than, you know, this time last year. So, um, all really good insight, Chris, uh, we're going to, we're going to, uh, uh, conclude this episode with the hard hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our guests. And the first question I always like to ask is what is your why? What is our why? Why do you do what you do? I would say our why is so that we can help bring the real estate industry into a much more, for lack of a better term, 21st century approach, using data, manipulating data, um, bringing the whole industry on par with the tech industry, on par with the financial industry, on par with the medical industry that have been looking at data for a long time, um, and, and, and saving our, our clients time allowing them to use data and use algorithms and use uh, analytical based approaches so that they're not a having to walk every single property that they might even be considering and b to have a little bit more of a sophisticated approach to, to buying and selling their real estate. Besides your alarm clock, what gets you out of bed every morning? Well, my alarm clock has recently become my new puppy. Um, but aside from that, what gets me out of bed every morning is, is the opportunity to kind of follow the big trends that I talk about. And, and it's not even real estate trends. Very rarely do I get up and I look at, you know, what transacted the day before or the week before. Um, but I want to know right now what's going on with this virus in an, in let's say six months ago, I want to know what was happening from a migration standpoint, what new companies were moving to secondary markets. Um, what was Tim Cook or Jeff Bezos saying about the environment, saying about um, the, the places that they wanted to grow? Because that I think is really what's going what's gonna to drive real estate, but what's going to drive society. And certainly real estate is, is an integral part of society. But when we think about some of these big factors, um, climate change and how that's impacting the real estate market, pandemics, how that's impacting the real estate market, job growth, and how that has an impact on the real estate market. Those are kind of the, the high level um, ideas and the, and the topics that I love to read and research um, and say, at the end of the day, based on all these other things, this is what a multifamily owner or multifamily operator needs to be thinking about. What's one piece of advice you would give your 21-year-old postgraduate self today? Um, I wish I had bought more. I remember, and it was coming out of the financial crisis, Warren Buffett was on CNBC or one of these shows, and he said, you know, if I could, I would buy every piece of residential real estate in, in the country. Um, 
And that's actually one of the quotes that that got me interested and got me started in, in real estate. And um, I'm proud of what I was able to do to start my my side portfolio. But I wish I had been, I wish I had the confidence to say, you know what, let's take even more leverage. Let's buy another one. Let's operate this. Um, because at some point you got to just jump in. Um, and then as, as the market, as the cycle heats up, it gets harder and harder to continue to jump in. Um, so I would have just said, you know, you're confident in your own abilities, your strategies really go all in on it. Um, and, and, and really drive that confidence. Chris, how can our listeners learn a little bit more about you and get a hold of you? Um, yeah, Nick, I'm, I'm happy to give you my contact information. Um, you can contact me directly at chris.nebenzal at yardy.com. Um, and Nick, I can, I can send that your way. I appreciate the spelling of my name in the background because that makes it easy. So it's just chris.nebenzal at yardy.com. Um, happy to chat, happy to, uh, converse by email. Um, and, and it would be great to, to come on your program again and continue the conversation. We'll have to have you on in, uh, in the next six months and, and talk about where the markets have, uh, have gone in that time. Uh, Chris Nebenzal, thank you so much for the time. We're very grateful and, and thank you per, for providing your value today. Nick, great to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.